collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning, everyone. You're welcome to another episode of Collective Power. We've slowed down a little bit over the summer, so those of you who noticed, we had a few replays. But this morning, I'm really happy to be back in the studio. Oh my God, this feels so good. And with two really, really gorgeous guests who, for those of you who have been following in the past couple of months, have probably heard. So Suzanne Robinson, good morning. And Mike O'Brien, good morning to both of you. Good morning. <laughs> okay, I hear you now. Great. Suzanne, let me hear your voice. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Perfect. All right. I'd love you to introduce yourselves and... I know you both, um, Suzanne is probably more of an, a friend than an acquaintance at this point, right? And Mike, our circles, just our, our paths keep on kind of crossing and separating and then crossing again. How you would introduce yourselves. I'd like you to give people a feel for who you are kind of at a personal level, like not a bio, but who you are as a human being and, and why do you care about juvenile justice? Don't crowd all at once, folks, you know. I'll go. So my name is Susan, and I just deeply, deeply care about equality and justice I have for my whole life. And having children has really taught me so much, but especially about injustice because their experiences with police and incarceration. My children are biracial. And when I compare my experiences that I had as a youth with incarceration and police with theirs, it's very, very different. Systems have deeply, deeply traumatized our family and changed us. Feels like for some, I, I do have a strong sense of faith and so I believe that divine presence is in all things and there has to be a reason for this. And so I hold on to that. But the daily circumstances of our lives can make that hard to feel and sense. And this matters a lot to me because I don't want other people, adults or children, to be traumatized and broken by systems that we 
uphold and we pay for. Mm. Thank you. Nice. That's powerful. I love that last phrase too, because uh, we are the mandated funders, as I like to say, as the taxpayers. So I appreciate that, sir. So my name is Mike, and I am, I like to think of myself as a dreamer, a thinker, a doer. <laughs> I like to think of myself as, uh, um, I stole this from Disney, an imagineer, somewhere between an engineer and, a, and an imaginative being. I really find myself in this work due to having you know, family members, uh, immediate family members that have been impacted by the justice system, both as a young person and as an adult and, you know, growing up. And I've shared this before in Philadelphia, a couple of different public things. My mother is a survivor of foster care and I've seen how easy it is for that kind of disconnection to lead to so many things that you don't want or intend to happen. And not just in my mom's life. I've seen this in a lot of my work in Philadelphia. I've worked with young people impacted by the foster care system, young people experiencing homelessness, families experiencing homelessness, adults in recovery, including vets. And it's fascinating how much the justice system is a through line and touch points with law enforcement are through lines for people, particularly at their, some of their, like, what I would call of their lowest experiences when what they don't need is a touch with law enforcement. So all of that really matters to me. And that whole piece around mandated funding matters to me. And so I just found myself uh, wanting to be involved with humans and to address suffering as much as possible. At least the suffering that we're mandating with taxpayer funds. One of the reasons I invited both of you here today is because of your very different insights into the juvenile justice system. So Suzanne, you as a parent, and Mike, you as a person who has worked with juvenile justice youth, right? And over the past couple of months, we've also had people who have other perspectives like on the data or other types of like programming and one of the things you both have in common is that you both have like direct family members who have been through, as Suzanne calls it, the juvenile injustice system. And I think sometimes what's really hard, what breaks people up in their perceptions is actually whether they know someone who's been through it in the details of their lives or not. And kind of what you were both sharing before the, the show started was and, and you mentioned it a little bit now, Michael, was this piece about people being kind of broken and broken down by the system. For people who have experienced like real human beings, like I knew this person before and I knew them after and they were not improved by the experience. It made it worse. I think that shapes to a great extent your critique of the juvenile justice system, right? It's like, this isn't an intellectual exercise. It's real people and watching real people shift and watch a real before and a real after. Can you both speak a little bit to that? Well, one, I think one nuance is that I don't think the justice system is working for anybody, adults or children, right? Like it's a business where the data stinks, right? 
if it's supposed to rehabilitate, recidivism rates are way too high for, uh, you know, that business to be achieving its stated outcomes. But we really were practicing capitalism. And I'm not saying that I love capitalism at all. I just want to be clear on that. But if we were practicing capitalism as we claim to practice capitalism, then that solution needs to fail, right? Like, it's not working. The market is not getting the return that it needs. I guess the question is, are the shareholders getting the return that they need, right? And I think that return is built on broken lives, right? It won't be as profitable if people are not going in it back and forth in cycles and in droves. And if we're not making sure that multiple generations are getting sucked in from neighborhoods and et cetera. There was this interesting research project out in Chicago where they mapped blocks and could and did valuation on the blocks in relationship to how much money young people were putting quote unquote young people, but really taxpayers were putting into the system based on the incarceration of these young folks. And so they came up with the phenomenon or discovered the phenomenon of the million dollar blocks. There are blocks in Chicago where literally there's a million dollars pumping out into the justice system regularly, yearly, right? That's not just Chicago, right? Chicago is the city that did the research and put it on the map or Cook County where Chicago has did that research and put it on the map. And so I think there's that like systems level. And then at the personal level, it, this isn't going to sound groundbreaking or deep. It's hurtful and terrifying to see someone you love be caught in a cycle that they can't even fully make sense out of. And it's hurtful to watch them be disoriented in it and want to do something different and want something different out of their lives and or their life, but not having a roadmap or touch points necessary to like close that gap. And, you know, it sometimes we can say, oh, you should rely on your family, blah, blah, blah. But people do carry shame and embarrassment and guilt. And there are expectations culturally just in being an American, let alone whatever your ethnic culture is and how your neighborhood experiences shape your perceptions around manhood and blah, blah, blah. Like there's a lot rolling around in our heads without experiences like incarceration, foster care, et cetera. And then when you layer those things in, it can just get really difficult. And I, I watch that and that's hurtful. My children, two out of three of them, have all been in private treatment and also been in court-ordered facilities. And I remember the first time I went into a, as a mother, into a prison to visit my son. And um, I was taken aback because every person in the room, except for maybe one, maybe one or two, was of color. And it was so glaring to me that this was purposeful. Not that I hadn't thought about it before, but it was, it was just shocking to me. I, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like this system is working because it's working to keep people where other people want them to be. So as you mentioned, Mike, the shareholders, it's, this is working my kids, when they have gone to private places where I have sent them, 
it's the opposite. It's almost entirely white. My kids are usually the only person of color in there. There might be one person. Um, so that is like immediate visual that I always notice and it saddens me. And the second thing is just in terms of what it does to people. A couple years ago when all three of my children over the period of one summer were locked up. So I, I spent every weekend and once one weekday visiting. And I remember going into the youth detention center on Saturdays and Sundays. And the visiting time was probably, I think it was like two hours or something. And we would go in and the kids would be locked in their very small rooms. And most of them didn't have visits or their parents would come one day and stay for an hour. So the rest of the time, they just stayed in their room, locked in there. And I just would look in the small window and I could see them laying in the bed, just laying there, sometimes sleeping Saturday afternoon, two o'clock. They're just sleeping or they're just laying in their bed. And I, I just thought, what are we doing? What are we doing? These kids, they're children. And we have them laying in the middle of a weekend when it's sunny outside, rotting. And then my kids that are in private treatment are getting all sorts of wonderful, wonderful therapies. Some of them very expensive and some of them not costly at all. So I think for me that most people don't see unless they have somebody they love who's incarcerated you have an idea about what's happening and maybe you strongly believe in punishment and that, that it's good that they should be locked away for hours in their room when they're 12 years old or when they're 45 years old. But that is not how we are meant to treat each other. It's wrong. It's wrong. And it's incredibly damaging. My son, who's at the adult level, that's a whole different <laughs> the coldness, the metal, you're just a number. You're not even a person. And most of these people, they're going to come out. And what treatment, what help have they had? My nephew has a life sentence. He says to me, there's three choices you can make. You can cave in and give up and you're just going to be every way the wind blows you, you're going to be taken advantage of. Or you can become very hard and do what you have to do to survive, which means violence. Or you can give up and kill yourself. And those are your three options. That's it. Maybe there's some others. He's been in jail for 16 years, and that's his summary as of now. And it doesn't have to be that way. What we're doing to people is wrong. What I'm present to is how painful it is to watch this for people you love. And I'm also present to the strength in it, though, too. Because your words are very powerful, Suzanne. Where do you draw strength? Mike and you, too. Where do you draw strength? I draw strength from, well, one, from practice of spirituality. Like, I, I think it's very important that we get back to our own personal sense of humanity and then 
we invest in the collective and shared sense and definition of humanity. And I think one of the simplest places I've found to start that journey is to just look at basic development. How do humans develop? What are the categories or dimensions of what's there? And, you know, luckily, academia, I think, kind of got this one right. I'm not saying they, they, they get everything right, but I think they kind of got this one right in terms of the fact that developmentalists and human ecologists look at human development being in four dimensions from a very uh, like science of development basis so that we develop in the physical dimension, the psychological dimension, the social, and then the spiritual. And spiritual not being religion, but about meaning-making. Um, the fact that humans will, over time, take their cumulative experiences, these added up experiences, and begin to understand their place in the world or some form of that. Even if it's not, I hate to say it like this, even if it's not objectively true, if the subjective experience of that person is, you know, what they believe it to be, then that's going to be the meaning that they're making out of the world and understanding for them what to expect of the world, how the world will treat them if they uh, maneuver in certain ways. And then there's also just making sense of what's happening in the context of things you can't control, like life and death, right? And even existing in a lot of the isms and phobias in the world, right? Like we're making sense of that. And it is becoming a part of who we are and or shaping who we are. And so I think that for me, what I draw strength on is the fact that I can do something, one thing per day in all four of those dimensions, Right, and the phys- for my physical well-being, for my um, psychological, or I also use the term emotional well-being, for my social well-being, and for my spiritual well-being. I can do one thing in each of those spaces every day. I can do one thing in one of those spaces every day, but I can do something to attend to my humanity because these systems and just the world we live in in general is not centered on humanity. It's actually centered on dehumanizing. Racism is a dehumanizing experience. You know, prison and jail, these are dehumanizing experiences. And there's so many more and they're compounded for so many people. They're dealing with multiple dehumanizing experiences and systems that you can lose touch of your own self fast, quick, in a hurry, and be reorganized by trauma and by chronic stress to be so hyper-focused on creating safety in one of those four dimensions or all four of those dimensions. Because that's the other thing I like about that framing is that if those are the four dimensions that a human and or humans develop in and through and they're interacting with each other and they're bi-directional and influencing one another, then that means we can create safety in those areas, but also that our safety can be challenged, accosted in those areas. Harm can exist in all four of those dimensions. So we have to think about physical psychological or emotional, social, and spiritual harm also being real risk. And so I even just get inspiration off of being able to communicate that kind of thinking to folks in ways that I think aren't too over their heads that can help with some sense of like agency or some people like, well, what I can do something in one of those categories for myself, at least each day. If I have kids, I can think about how to communicate to other people about what they need in some of those categories. I think about how to get the young person to even have that kind of dialogue. But yeah, those are just two 
things that give me some some energy and strength in the space. I love that. Thanks. I would say my biggest way that I draw strength is my spiritual practices because they ground me in truth and remind me that no matter what, all is well, no matter what. And that might mean awful things happen, but still all is well. And I, I do believe that I get really wobbly, but at my core, I believe that. And also we all have that divinity in us. So when people or my children are behaving in ways that are very challenging to me, I try to pause and think, you know, this is coming out of them because of the things that have happened to them, their trauma, and to try to love on them instead of responding in a way that might escalate things. And also just like, we all have this ability to transform our lives. As Mike said, we're we're like figuring it out. And hopefully as we go, we become more aware of ourselves and, and what life is trying to teach us. And we're all being pulled to be our higher selves. And that might not happen in this lifetime. We're all on this journey. I really believe that. And then being of service to others helps me because it gets me out of my own situation. And even if it's just for an hour to be out of my own head and my own life is helpful. And I love that idea that Mike said about tending to humanity. I love that. Like that's what we all came here to do, right? Tend to each other. So what would a juvenile justice system that tends to humanity look like? Or you were saying uh, earlier, Michael, you said creating a humanizing experience instead of a dehumanizing experience. What would a juvenile justice system that creates a humanizing experience look like? Well, it wouldn't start with law enforcement. It wouldn't start with handcuffs, right? I mean, it wouldn't start with putting people in cages and doing things that, again, biologically do not aid in development or aid in the concept or idea of a corrective emotional behaviors, right? Like, at the end of the day, young people are going to make mistakes. Like, that's just a part of life. Adolescence is the space to be dumb and screw up and just make all the mistakes. They're borrowing their prefrontal cortex or cortices from us as adults. And I think we got to remember that, that uh, the part of the brain that deals with planning, judgment, being able to weigh consequences against one another, these seem like simple tasks, but they're highly involved with so many other parts of your brain and take other skills that this part of the brain is using alongside this ability to hold consequences against one another, you know, to hold a, to, to one dude, be able to put forward a consequence and another one or a couple, right. And hold them against each other intention and reason with them means you have to have a very active imaginative faculty. Number one. 
because you have to go into the place of an abstraction. You got to like play around with possibility and blah, blah, blah. And then you have to have something called inhibitory control, right? You got to be able to hold the impulse to do so that you can hold the consequences against each other and then make an informed choice. That part of your brain is underdeveloped until your late 20s. We're talking like 26 at the earliest for that part of your brain to biologically have gone through its maturation point. That's wild because we're automatically trying to get preschoolers to use inhibitory control and sit at a chair and we're locking little kids up because they can't control their emotions, et cetera. It's like just from a biological basis with no trauma, no chronic stress, that would still be difficult. You lay in these other life experiences and it's almost impossible. And then trauma suspends that part of our brain, right? Right. Because by the nature of trauma, we learn to survive, not thrive. And so when we've experienced a trauma, what happens is that it gets sort of recorded in our brain, sort of like an old record. There's a trace that gets encoded in our brain that says when this happens, either fight, run, or freeze. And so a part of our brain that does all the weighing and the measuring that you're talking about, right, is suspended because we're, our bodies are pumping adrenaline to either fight, run, or freeze. <laughs> so I right. love what you're saying because it's what we're saying is that our system is not only dismissing everything we know about development, it's also dismissing everything we know about trauma. Right, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because there are folks in the trauma field who will say, well, young people impacted by trauma can't imagine. I are like, they have a really hard time doing that. And what I have realized is not that they can't imagine. I think it's that the, to your point, it's like it's been hijacked, mm-hmm. right? The way they can project forward is so built around reestablishing safety in however or whatever way makes the most sense to their brain and body that that tends to be the way that they move with like, all right, here's what could happen to me. I'm not doing X or Y, right? It's just the imagining other outcomes and possibilities outside of hurt and, and being re-traumatized or being harmed again can be really, really difficult for them to hold in this space of like a belief that could become actual. So I think it's important that whatever system we create to address the real-time issue of young people making mistakes and needing love and support to correct those mistakes and to learn from them, you know, it has to start with the fact that they're human first. And we can just decide to not do things like put handcuffs on children. Like, that's just absurd. I don't know what that's teaching them. I was going to say, and not only handcuffs, shackles. Yeah, The other piece of this is just mistakes, right? So what we call mistakes are an integral part of life. Like what human being has not made a mistake they could get caught for? I stole chalks from the blackboard in second grade. Now, when a white girl does something like that, it's like, you know, whatever. She wanted the chalks. Buy her some chalks, right? They were colorful. They were pretty. I wanted them. I took them. Right. 
like a, a child of color literally for something like that today where police are in the school could actually end up in a juvenile justice pass for that. And Suzanne, I think you've shared some stories that weren't very far from that, <laughs> from like, you know, unfortunately, and what, what, what's happened to your kids. But like, who lives a life without making mistakes? Like, that's practically impossible. Like, if I, we I, lived without mistakes, we wouldn't live. We wouldn't grow up. We wouldn't mature. Like, the essence of life is making decisions, rethinking them, and making different decisions. Like, I think even for people who don't... It sounds like both of you would be in alignment with kind of my perception that spirituality is about learning, right? It is about the spirit learning the body and remembering the spirit and all that. So it's like the essence of life to me is learning. But even for people for whom that isn't true from a spiritual stance, learning is integral to life. Like we can't live, our personalities don't develop without mis so-called mistakes. And so to have these systems that systematically punish people for being human is outrageous. I say this in, in, in my book as well, like, what would it look like to have a system that actually ushers us forward those decisions, right? And fosters the reflection of like, okay, what is the impact of that decision? And do I really want to make this decision again? And what had me go in default? And, you know, what had me not think through that, to, to your point, uh, Michael? And what can I put in place next time? Like, who can I call? Who can I ask support of? What can I do instead? How can I take care of my body? How can I take care of the urge? Like, what would it be like to actually have a system that embraces that humans make stupid decisions most of the time, many times, <laughs> right? And, and usher us through a process of learning. I think that grace gets extended to certain people and does not get extended to other people. And it kind of starts there. And how we look at people and how we understand their behavior is based on a lot of things that are about implicit bias. And those people are funneled through certain channels based on how somebody at the very beginning who was biased, we're all biased in some way, but if we have power, like the police or other people have, we really can ruin someone's life through that bias. But I, I wanted to go back to you said, what would a justice system that is humanizing look like? And um, I think that I have some very concrete ideas just because of some of the places where my kids have been that have been really restorative and then other places that have been really damaging. And so I just want to say a few of those things that the places that were restorative they had education. They had education for the person that was in there. They had education for the parents. The parents were part of the whole thing. So it wasn't like your kid is going to come here and then they're going to leave in a month or a year or whenever it is. And you weren't part of it. And I don't mean part of it like on paper, but you're not really part of it. So there's a parent education piece. There's a parent involvement piece. The state facilities for juveniles, you take a cold shower, 
I forget how long the shower is, a minute or two, you wear the same clothes that you wear in adult prison, the Bob Barker, the toothpaste and the, the slides and all that is the same as a juvenile as it is an adult. The phone calls are the same. You get the recording and it's timed exactly as the adult place. This is where we have our juveniles. That's not restorative. They are yelled at. They are treated harshly. The private places have nice blankets. They have nice pillows. They have nice mattresses. They get to have their own toiletries. They get to take a warm shower. They might have mindfulness. They might have yoga. They can watch movies. They can be in a school, like a real school, not a, you know, fake school that everything on paper looks like we're doing something that we're not doing. You can spend time in nature. So these are not complicated, expensive things that we could do at every single level. And that to me would be humanizing. Instead, we demoralize people by, I'm going to punish their impulsivity out of them. I'm going to punish their depression. I'm going to punish their addiction. I'm going to punish the ADHD out of them. (laughs) This is what they do in the juvenile settings. It's crazy because we know you, you can't punish somebody out of a mental health issue or trauma or addiction. My son now, because he's getting out of prison soon, he has to do these programs. So all my kids have substance use disorder So his program for his addiction is a pamphlet. He reads a pamphlet and he completes it and turns it in and then he gets the next pages. Anybody in the world of addiction, that's a joke, right? Like that's ridiculous, but that's doing that. He'll have signed off, like checked, and then he's good to go. You know, he knows about addiction and I guess he's going to be cured. So it's stuff that we know is not best practice. We know doesn't work. And we still do it and do it and do it, even though all of us can have this conversation and all the professors and researchers and look at the data. And what's frustrating is we know all that and we still do the opposite to actually do what we know works and heals and stop doing the stuff that not only doesn't work, but that harms. That would be humanizing. Let's put our knowledge into practice and not in 10 years from now. So our systems are systematically perpetuating things we know that don't work, predominantly yes. for youth of color. Yes. So what's fascinating about this is because the system actually precedes the knowledge, right? Like mm-hmm. the system was rooted in enslavement and segregation, right? And by system, I mean like all the rules, the practices, the way we're used to things being, right? Like all of that actually proceeds because knowledge about trauma is probably 50-ish years old. Michael, how old would you say the knowledge about development, the updated studies around development and brain development? So it's progressive, right? And iterative, just in context or with brain development, yeah, about 20 years, a little less than 20 years that we now know that neuroplasticity, the fact that the brain can change over time. It's not, you know, I grew up under DARE. It was, this is your (laughs) brain on drugs. They crack the egg. You know, if you drink, the other thing, if you drink, (laughs) 
you're losing, you're killing brain cells. You don't get any of them back. And around, you know, the early 2000s, very early 2000s is when the research came out that, you know, irrefutably proved that none of that was true. Mm -hmm. There is damage to the brain from using drugs, alcohol, doing other things, right? It's not even just like a trauma is damaging to the brain, right? Chronic stress is damaging to the brain, but yet your brain can recover and it can grow new cells and new connections between cells can grow. That's called synaptogenesis. Neurogenesis is when new brain cells are growing. And again, synaptogenesis, when new connections between your brain cells and between neurons are, uh, is growing or happening. So yeah, this is new, new. We have not, school hasn't even changed to match the reality yeah. of what we understand about development. Yeah. So. And the addiction knowledge, Suzanne, that you were talking about that we like, we know that addiction doesn't get cured by learning more about addiction cognitively, right? So how old is that science, would you say? I don't know. I think it's been around for a while. I know when my oldest son was a teenager, he's 30 now, people didn't understand that or it wasn't as well known. Yeah, so it's probably like, you know, 30, 40 years. If it's longer, it's about, we're talking about 40 years, not, not a whole lot more than that. And so we have systems that like the source of the juvenile justice system being enslavement and then the almshouses of the 1800s, right? So we have institutions and systems, which means policies, practices, institutions that were built 200 years ago, Mm -hmm. continuing to operate in the same way, despite what we know from the past 20 to 50 years about how humans work, how brain works, and so on and so forth. So I hear this. So like one of the pieces is creating a humanizing experience would be actually, um, why don't we apply what we actually know about humans today, <laughs> not what we knew about them 200 years ago. So that, that's huge. And, and what I hear is it's on different fronts, right? On the development front, on the trauma front, the addiction front, and then there's life. And the life part is tricky because that's where implicit bias comes in, right? Because if I make a mistake, then I want grace. But if you want mistake, make a mistake, then I want punishment. That's very human. That blaming is very human. But if we had all the other three in place, like that would be almost like in check, right? Yes. How do we build collective power around this? Like, what do you see in terms of, we've talked a lot about kind of, how you look at it individually, how you draw strength individually. How do we build collective power around this? There are a lot of advocacy groups across the country focusing on this issue. There are some locally as well. Philadelphia region focusing on this issue as well. I mean, one way to build collective power is just to also learn. You got to learn about this complex crazy system, particularly given that it's a little different based on where you're living. So regionally, we have an interesting situation where our Jew in Philadelphia, the juvenile justice division or work is housed inside of the Department of Human Services. That's not common everywhere else in the country. So DHS is directly over the juvenile justice system, 
And what do you think are the implications of that? Yeah, I was going to say a large portion of it. It's a lot of concentrated power, a ridiculous amount of concentrated power. I do think it makes for, and and this might make some people mad, but we got to just tell the truth. It makes for weird checks and balances. There are too many situations and cases. There's a story about, I think it's Devereaux is the most recent one. Kids are being harmed. Kids are losing their lives. I don't know what system gets to repeatedly put black and brown children, not just in harm's way, but literally deliver them unto death and still get mandated tax funds. And this is what I mean by switching the language. Um, I don't even know if I said this. I say this a lot in other spaces, but this idea of we got to change some of our language so that we better understand what's happening in the civic process and how we are participants, whether we are knowing or unknowingly, knowingly or unknowingly participating as citizens. Taxpayers are mandated funders, and we have mandated funding that is supporting the further traumatization and harming of black and brown children. It is literally now supporting their death. It is supporting 10 years in some cases plus on uh, addressed physical and sexual abuse that has been documented within institutions getting this mandated funding. This is out of pocket. And from a biological standpoint, we are now using taxpayers as the mandated funders of the poisoning of the central nervous system, body and brain, because chronic stress and trauma unmitigated legitimately are poisonous to the brain and body. And there's a lot of public health research on this. Um, The Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, the ACEs study is probably the most landmark study in this area. And the brilliant part about that is they did it with predominantly white folks. So if it's true amongst them, you can't deny our humanity now on the end of that harm also being humanly applicable to people of color. Part of it's just understanding that landscape, I think, as a starting place. And you don't got to become an expert in the whole thing, but to just understand that, like, whoa, me not knowing, not being active, not caring at all to even just ask my elected official a couple of pointed questions does not change the fact that your tax dollars are supporting murder, death, harm. And yes, I use the word murder on purpose because I do think the system is liable for these young people's lives when they know overwhelmingly that this system is routinely now delivering black and brown children who have already been impacted by trauma and harms unto death. That is not happenstance. That's not a mistake anymore. We can change the system. And so the last piece I'll say is there are advocacy groups locally that are doing this work. Youth Arts Self-Empowerment Project is one. The Village of Arts and Humanities partners with a lot of spaces places like Juvenile Law Center, who's doing uh, a lot of research work in this area and some advocacy work. Um, The Youth Sentencing and Reentry Project is doing a lot of advocacy work and also their lawyers representing youth who are what they call direct file. That means they're young people under the age of 18 being tried as adults and they're working on those cases. I feel like I'm leaving people out and I don't want anyone to get mad at me, but there are a lot of great, all the uh, hubs. There are these defense hubs that the Defenders Association partners with community orgs and community members to put up around the city. So if anyone's ever like impacted by the system, you don't know what to do. Even if you just want to get involved, figure out like, how do I get more involved in the issue? Defense hubs are a really 
great first stop. They're in varying regions. There's one in North Philly. There's one in South Philly. Yeah, so there, there are opportunities and avenues for people to get involved and to learn more. I agree that we need to get educated and to educate other people and raise awareness. Just professionally, in my role as a school counselor, we hear one message, we hear one voice, and that's from mainstream middle to upper class white people who believe in systems who who are for sending kids to place like places like Devereaux, but was another facility which beat children for decades and was still functioning up until a couple years ago, and everybody knew about it. So I think we need to make sure that people in positions that are making recommendations hear from people with direct experience because their perspective is going to be different than somebody who has not walked the walk. And they will tell you down to the nitty gritty how it really is, not what it looks like on paper, what it really is. So I think we need to lift up those people to empower them to speak because that is going to really shed light on what's it really like and to create transparency so that systems and placements, they know someone is watching. They know you can't just beat the heck out of somebody and get away with it because there's a camera there. There's accountability there. So I think raising awareness transparency, education, and and giving those impacted by the system a voice because that's the voice that's been absent. It's all the experts that want to tell, you know, these poor people that need help what to do and how to do it. Let's empower those people because they have a lot to say that would be meaningful and transformative, and they've been silenced. I really appreciate like the experience and the depth that you both bring. You both have like really deep spiritual practices. And so I feel like, you know, the pace, I I feel like we've slowed down a little bit in this show, like really kind of slowing down the pace to actually feel it all a little bit more. Sometimes it's harder to feel it, like feel it in our bellies feel injustice in our bellies than it is to kind of intellectualize it. And um, so I thank you for this pace. I thank you for being willing to feel it in your bellies. To the best of my ability, I'm trying to feel it with you. And I think collective power has to be built from feeling it in our bellies too. We can't bypass the physical impact of racism in our bodies and then like we can't build collective power if we're not willing to feel the impact in our bodies so that's just an acknowledging you both to be willing to feel it at that depth because I know it, it really takes something or I don't know that I know it the way you know it I know that it takes something for myself and I can see that it takes something for you all as well Um, And there's a tremendous amount of kind of 
hope and determination and perseverance that you bring to this work every day that I think not only honors you, but, but certainly inspires me. So we're starting to close. So any last thoughts and places where people can reach you or contact you? Sure. My um, email is really simple. It's Mike at village with an S dot org. That's V I L L A G E A R T S dot dot org. Just the closing thought is I, I go back to these are just uh, abnormal times and racism, sexism, all the phobias, homophobia, transphobia, classism, ageism, right? All of that was already absurd. And then you throw all this stuff on top of it that we're going through and everything's just absurd. So, you know, tending to your humanity really matters and tending to the humanity of others matters. And business as usual is not going to do it for us. And I think, you know, in many ways, simple but hard part is to do something for yourself in one of those or at least two of those categories of the physical the you know psychological or emotional the uh, social and the spiritual and I think the reason I say that at least two is because one can have you continuing to think that your humanity is just in one dimension and I think when you do one thing in at least two categories it's a little bit of a subconscious wake-up call that you are existing in multiple dimensions of being at the same time and they are interacting with each other and influencing each other. There's a check-in that I use at the top of all my meetings, even with people in the for-profit industry and folks like, how do you do that? I'm like, we just do it, right? It just started quickly. And I sneak it in, right? But the uh, premise of it is how's your body, how's your mind, how's your heart? Again, just getting people to check in. I go, it's 90 seconds, right? And people might laugh, but they do it. And they're like, you know what? I actually kind of like that. I said that. And I like hearing from other people. It gives me a way to orient myself in the space. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't have to be 25 minutes of storytelling. So just, again, checking in with yourself and doing stuff for yourself in those spaces. And then challenging yourself and to view your children, other people, spouses, friends, neighbors, uh, through that same lens of what do they need? How is their body, their mind, and their heart? Because all are present and interacting with each other at the same time. Um, yeah, that's all. I'm stealing that check-in. <laughs> it comes from a brilliant guy named Dr. Robert Macy. I don't know if he got it from somewhere else, but he's a trauma specialist out of Boston. And I learned that from, from doing some uh, training and work with him. I love that. Well, I'm just, I'm sitting in my home office and I have all these post-its around me and I'm looking at one that I wrote a while ago and it says, how do you get through a day and a life? And I wrote, you laugh. This is not from me though. You laugh, you spend some time in thought every day and you cry, whether for laughter or sadness, just feel. So... I think that's important to remember, to support each other in the journey. And I am humbled and honored to just be a part of this because I have a lot of shame around my family and parenting. And so I don't really speak about this stuff ever. Um, And Rita, it's not until I came into your fold (laughs) 
that I do speak about this. So thank you for inviting me and giving me the opportunity. And I just hope that it touches people and makes them think a little bit differently about people that in their mind, they might other, you know, because that could be you, that could be your child, that could be your loved one. So have grace, have grace, because we are all branches of the same tree. I really care about helping parents, especially. So if anybody wanted to get in touch with me, my email is chrisu, K-R-I-S-O-U, 000 at Gmail. And my highest desire is to be in service to humanity. Thank you. Thank you guys for such a yummy show. You certainly Mm -hmm. have moved me. And uh, that call for grace, I hope is something we'll all bring into our walks of life in the next week or month or years. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.